Hello everyone and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie and usually we'd at this time be hearing I'm Iz and I'm Isabel, but uh, they have some prior commitments so today you've got a full half hour of straight up Katie, um, which depending how you look at it could be an excellent thing or it could be horrible for you. I'm sorry in advance if the latter is the case. Uh, but today we've got a really interesting topic. We're going to be talking about uh, epidemiological transitions. So it's going to be a little bit of a voyage into medical anthropology, which we haven't talked a whole ton about on the show. Um, medical anthropology can be a subset of biological or evolutionary anthropology, but it can also be a subset of sociocultural anthropology because medical anthropology looks a lot at biocultural determinants of health. So first off, since we are talking about epidemiological transitions, um, I'm going to give you a lowdown on what epidemiology is. So epidemiology is the study of health and disease distributions and determinants, and determinants can be social or they can be biological, uh, they're different determinants. So in medical anthropology, some things we look at are epidemiological transitions. So an epidemiological transition can be a large change in health landscape. So it can be increased or decrease in births, deaths, fertilities, different life events, and also differences in the diseases we experience and how we experience them. Epidemiological transitions are usually tied to some sort of um, cultural revolution, as we'll see later. So it's also important to note that different places can and have undergone different transitions at different times. Um, so we're going to be looking at the Western model today by uh, A.R. Omran, but um, just because a place hasn't undergone epidemiological transition doesn't mean that they're less far along or less evolved. It's just different, different places. Um, with different contexts and different cultures. So that's something to keep in mind. So to set the scene a little bit, we're going to talk about uh, human prehistory um, with both humans as we are now, uh, modern humans, and our pre-human ancestors. So uh, prehistoric humans, and some humans today, uh, were widely hunter-gatherers. So this means they'd be going uh, all along the landscape and they'd be foraging for the food and the resources they need through hunting practices, fishing practices, botanical gathering, and hunter-gatherers were largely nomadic peoples. So they'd be in really small groups, which is key, um, because if you've got a group of like 10,000 people and you're like moving across in like a herd, it's it's not going to be especially um, conducive to that lifestyle. For humans, at least, that might work for like 10,000, I don't know, 10,000 snails. Do snails my? I don't think snails migrate in the 10,000s, but some animals do migrate in larger herds than human hunter-gatherers would. Anyhow, in hunter-gatherer times, we would have seen low mortality and low fertility. Um, the fertility thing if you're moving around a lot, it's not going to be practical to have like 20 kids in tow. Um, so hunter-gatherers would uh, often engage in practices such as abstinence, as well as things as extreme or extreme to most people when they hear it, uh, as infanticide or the killing of uh, offspring. 
So that would help to control birth rates and um, life rates in the case of infanticide. Um, Hunter-gatherer societies were largely egalitarian. There were equal resources shared within the group, which is something that's really foreign to a lot of um, cultures and societies today because we're so stratified. But the stratification comes later. Just wait. We're still in hunter-gatherer. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a lot of implications for health for hunter-gatherers. For one thing, there weren't a lot of crowd diseases, if if any really, because crowd diseases rely on these large groups interacting with each other in order to propagate. Um, it's difficult for infectious diseases to become endemic, or endemic would mean kind of just there, always there in a society, um, in a small population. That's not something that we see. Um, it's not to say that disease didn't exist in hunter-gatherers. Um, it just would have looked different. You would have seen a lot of parasitic stuff like lice, worms, uh, you would have seen stuff like yaws, things like that. Um, so that brings us to the first epidemiological transition, which most would argue is the most significant transition. So the first epidemiological transition coincides with the uh, Neolithic or agricultural revolution. So we can call the first epidemiological transition time, uh, it's often called the age of pestilence and famine, which is not doesn't sound like a fun time. Um, if I had a time machine, I would not be like, hey, bring me back to the age of pestilence and famine. Sounds like a party. Um, <laughs> but no. Um, so yeah, at this point, humans are widely moving from hunter-gatherer lifestyles to agriculturist lifestyles. So instead of gathering our food from the environment, we're starting to domesticate it and grow it ourselves. In order to do this, if you've got like a massive crop of corn, you're not just gonna piece out and leave the corn. You're going to stay where you are. So instead of seeing nomadic lifestyles or moving around the landscape, we're seeing the rise of sedentary permanent populations. Um, there's also high mortality, um, but high fertility. We're staying here. We need kids to help out. We're no longer going across the landscape. We can afford to have more kids. Populations thus are getting larger. Um, and again, if you're staying somewhere, you can afford to have a population that's larger than if you're moving. Like, I would not want to move the entire population of Hamilton to migrate to, like, somewhere. But, you know, it, it's cool living in Hamilton because we're, we're all staying here. Um, we're not, we're not uprooting our, our lives to follow where the food and the resources are. Um, with this transition though, we've got some new problems. We've got inequality starting and social stratification. People are specializing in crafts. Resources aren't shared equally anymore. Um, and social stratification is still a huge facet of our societies today. There's also issues, uh, that come up with the rise of agriculture and a major thing with that is that with agriculture if we are farming cows and sheep and pigs we're spending time with them inherently by by farming them and when we spend time close to animals there's um probability that something called a zoonosis will arise so zoonosis is a disease that originates in animals and uh, often they get transmitted to humans and they can actually progress through the stages where they become an entirely human disease. 
for example, HIV uh, is a zoonosis that would have started in animals, and now it's an exclusively human disease. But uh, yeah, when we spend time with animals, we there's opportunity for those diseases to transmit. Um, and most inf emerging infectious diseases today are zoonotic and start in animals, um, like tuberculosis was zoonotic. There was bovine tuberculosis. Um, and COVID-19, which is something we are all dealing with today on some level, uh, is likely zoonotic in origin. So with animals, we've also got animal products that can contaminate our landscapes. Um, manure can go in the water. Even human waste can contaminate our landscape and transmit disease. So that's one of the kind of health landscape issues of agriculture. Um, groups also, since they're kind of sticking together, they've got biological heterogeneity. Um, this can cause susceptibility to diseases, uh, or it can cause, or it can result in resistance. Uh, so it's it's a two-edged sword. But diseases are starting to become endemic at this point. They're just there. They're a part of our life. We know they're there. They're with us to stay. <laughs> like, diseases that are endemic today include, like, the common cold. Like, we go through life knowing that we can pretty much catch a cold at any time. It's endemic in our society. It's not new or surprising when somebody gets a cold. Um, another thing with uh, agriculture that a lot of people don't think about as much is uh, some of the dietary problems. A lot of people would think, oh, now we're farming our food, we've got lots of nutritious stuff. But the thing is, if we're going and we're hunting and we're gathering, we're getting a lot more varieties of food than if we're simply uh, farming them. So we've got a, a lot less variation in our diet, which can cause malnutrition because some of the things that uh, we may have been getting from diverse plants in the wild we're now just getting from our corns, our beans, our squash, uh, and, you know, we might not have all the nutrition we need from that. There's also the idea of dental issues. So with agriculture, we're eating a lot more starchy foods, uh, and starchy foods can, um, they, the bacteria, they love the starchy, sugary foods, and they come in and they cause all of our favorite, the cavity. Um, I'm actually lucky. I've never, I've never had a cavity. I have had a filling, which is kind of a sad, twisted thing considering I've never had a cavity, but that's a whole other story. But I hear they're not a fun time. So um, imagine you get a cavity here in these early agricultural times. There's no dentist up the street. I mean, you've got craft specialization starting, but you're not going to like go to the dentist because that's not really a thing yet. Um, so yeah, dental caries are a huge problem that we see with the advent of agriculture. So some of the characteristic diseases of the first epidemiological transition are like smallpox, tuberculosis, leprosy, some of these crowd diseases. So once we've finished with that, we, you know, we're sitting in our agricultural glory for a while, and I mean, most of humanity is still uh, agriculturally based today. Um, but at some point in time, early modern times, to the 19th century, we decide to take things to a different level, and we start industrializing. 
So industrialization um, is still occurring in some places. It's not a static thing like, oh, okay, at this point, everyone in the world industrialized. That's that's not what happened. Um, there are places that haven't industrialized. There are places that are industrializing. And again, we don't want to look at things with a unilineal evolution lens. It makes us go like, oh, okay, we've industrialized. We're like top tier. They haven't industrialized. It's not like that. So anyhow, um, in the second epidemiological transition, we're seeing declining mortality rates and higher life expectancies. Um, as such, logical uh, thing that comes from that is population growth. Huge change in health landscape is a move from infectious to chronic disease. So where a lot of people before would have been taken out by things like tuberculosis, which by the way is still one of the top causes of death in the world today tangent here but I think a lot of the times we think oh the consumption oh you know tuberculosis a thing of the past coughing up blood blah 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 romantic 19th century stuff no people are dying from tuberculosis today all over the world it's endemic in many places anyhow that's my that's my small tuberculosis rant <laughs> um but yeah we're moving towards degenerative diseases so more of the things that we're you know, dying from today, heart failure, cancer, diabetes, strokes, these degenerative uh, diseases and causes of mortality. We're also seeing a rise in chronic inflammatory diseases like allergies and autoimmune disorders. And an interesting segue with this um, to the next point is uh, allergies um, and chronic inflammatory diseases like that. They, they um, We're starting to look at those through the lens of the hygiene hypothesis. So it's the idea that we have been less exposed to pathogens, bacteria, and microbes that help to prime our immune system. So pretty much when we encounter something, our body's gonna be like, oh, like, problem, attack it. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's gonna be something that we react to. So thus we have allergies and that kind of thing. At this point in the Industrial Revolution, um, or the sep second epidemiological transition rather, we're also starting to understand diseases more. So uh, you might recall in one of our past episodes, we talked about the idea of uh, an early health idea of the miasma. Um, so the idea that you're getting sick from bad air. And I can totally see why people thought like it was the air because, you know, respiratory droplets and air transmission is a huge way that we get infectious diseases, right? But a lot of people thought in particular it was the air. Or if you go even back farther to Hippocrates, the idea of humors and biles that have to be imbalanced. We're moving away from those and we're moving towards germ theory. We're starting to understand science. So, yeah, I mean, logically, if we understand science, we're going to move towards more treatments and preventions. We're going to get things like um, antibiotics. We're going to get things like vaccines. So both viruses and bacteria, we understand them to the point where we can come up with effective treatments and or preventions uh, that can help address those problems. So a bit of a tangent here, but while we're talking about those degenerative diseases, I want to kind of dive into the idea of evolutionary medicine. So evolutionary medicine is a newly emerging field in anthropology and its cognate disciplines. Um, and it's the idea that our evolution 
doesn't our, suit our current environments and propagates some of these chronic diseases. Um, which is really, really interesting to think that um, I've heard it described, I think it's Dr. Lieberman at Harvard has described it as like a mismatch between our own evolutionary past and what we're experiencing now that kind of causes these different uh, chronic diseases. So that's really interesting. So we're at the point now in our little historical journey where we've uh, we've industrialized. Um, we're looking right now at like Canada, the U.S., um, Western Europe, and we're gonna we're gonna head into the third epidemiological transition, which is uh, the starts in the 1980s. Um, I wasn't around in the 1980s, but I hear they were a fun time. Um, except the next things we're going to talk about in this transition are not as fun as the discos and the pants. Were pants, <laughs> obviously pants were a thing in the 80s, but bell bottoms. Were those seven? Those are 70s. I'm not sure. I don't study at all the 70s, 80s, the 90s. I was briefly around for, but... <laughs> Anyhow, the point is, we're moving into the 80s. So, in the 80s, we've got some newly emergent and re-emergent infectious diseases. Um, we thought that we conquered a lot of diseases, but we thought wrong. So, a lot of the diseases that we thought we had eradicated are making a comeback. Side note, a lot of this problem um, is due to people resisting vaccination. Um, vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaccination ideals are extraordinarily damaging to our society because things that we've had under control, like measles, they're like, yes, I love this whole anti-vax thing because I can come now. I mean, okay, viruses aren't alive, um, most concur, because a virus relies on a host organism in order to replicate, so they're not alive. But if a virus was alive... It would be like, heck yeah, party time, anti-vaxxers, my favorite people. So yeah, um, point is, diseases that we thought were gone are back. The other thing we're seeing is antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria. And a lot of that can be um, linked to malpractice and overprescription of antibiotics. Uh, for a long time, you go in they're like, oh, I think it's, you know, bacterial. I'm just going to give you antibiotics. Um, and there wasn't always necessarily proper testing with, you know, okay, I'm going to see, I'm going to make sure you have strep throat or whatever. Um, and then I'm going to prescribe antibiotics or I'm going to make sure you have an ear infection, like that kind of thing. Um, a lot of the times it was just like, write that prescription and go. Um, so now we're seeing the rise of strains of bacteria is there antibiotic resistant and one of the scariest is tuberculosis we're seeing multi-drug resistant um and extensively drug resistant tuberculosis and we might at some point see an entirely drug resistant tuberculosis if we haven't already the other thing we're seeing is syndemic uh, so syndemics are the idea of two diseases kind of two or more diseases co-occurring together and exacerbating each other's symptoms. 
So for example, a huge syndemic that's still a problem is HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, and TB tuberculosis. So um, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, if you're HIV positive um, and you're not treated properly, your immune system can be um, suppressed to the point where it can't really fight anything off, you can progress into AIDS, and it can be fatal, as many of us know. However, um, if you are HIV positive and you can track TB, you can have um, a lot more complications than somebody who's not HIV positive and contracts t uh, TB. So that's considered a syndemic. A lot of people are contracting them both and they're suffering the consequences of that syndemic. We're also seeing rapid global spreads of diseases. So we're in a really global world. We're seeing flights go from here to there every single day. And flights bring people a lot of the time and people bring diseases. So that's been a huge problem with um, even our current COVID pandemic. We've seen a lot of people travel from one place to another, bring an infection and spark an outbreak in community transmission. So rapid global spread, as many wonderful things as globalization has brought, uh, it's also brought with it a lot of problems. Um, at this point in the third transition, effectively, we've got the diseases of the second transition, plus our extra resistant friends like TB and staph, and we've got our newly emergent diseases like COVID, uh, some of the flu, influenzas, that kind of fun thing. And at this point, too, we've got completely different determinants of health due to epidemiological polarization. So, speaking for myself, I'm lucky to live in Canada. Um, I have pretty much all the determinants that make me an excellent candidate for proper treatment, um, low risk of contracting many diseases, but so many people in the world um, are affected by these social determinants um, that really reduce their fighting chance at being able to cope with a disease. Um, and it ends up either not being treated and progressing into a chronic state that they have to live with, or sometimes they can, um, they can die from it. So yeah, this is a huge departure. If you remember like 15 minutes ago, we were talking about hunter-gatherers, completely egalitarian societies. And now we have a hugely social stratified society, um, which is, has brought with it many, many challenges. So moving forward, we need to look at solving a lot of these challenges we've had in this current era. Um, a lot of it might be, you know, researching uh, antibiotic resistance or putting money into solving some of the problems that we have with pharmaceuticals. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the times, if there's not money in it, the pharmaceutical research won't happen. Um, and unfortunately, the groups that are most disproportionately affected by things are often the ones without the means or resources to make things happen. So th that's just something to think about for um, our current global climate. But um, just to kind of wrap things up, um, I, I find the epidemiological transition stuff neat because we can look at it through a variety of anthropological lenses. So bioarchaeologically, for example, we can see some of the crowd diseases. So tuberculosis is um, really neat to see manifest skeletally. Um, I'm just going to remind everyone that in order to 
um, see a disease manifest skeletally, it would have had to be chronic. This individual would have had to have lived with it for a long time. And we know due to the uh, osteological paradox that um, the people that we can see um, things manifest in skeletally are probably the people with the most robust immune systems, the most robust um, supports uh, in different senses. So tuberculosis, though, you can see skeletally. Um, one of the th places that it really likes to hang out is in the spine. Um, the tuberculosis that you see in the in skeletons is most often the bovine form of tuberculosis, which is something that you would contract from drinking um, possibly like a contaminated milk or a, um, a contaminated meat, which is a huge reason why we um, have pasteurization today and why things like antibiotics have been introduced. Um, although there are far more um, efficient ways to do things with food other than pumping them with antibiotics because that brings a lot of challenges as well. But um, yeah, you can see tuberculosis often manifests skeletally in the spine. Um, you can get a kyphotic bend, which is kind of a hunchback bend uh, from tuberculosis. Um, people often get that in their childhood and live with that throughout their life. Um, there are some different zoonoses we see in skeletons, like brucellosis, which is something that a lot of people um, that have contact with wild animals get. Um, different STIs we can see skeletally, like syphilis can manifest skeletally if it progresses to tertiary syphilis. Um, different things. So <laughs> that's my little... I'm going on so many tangents today. I'm sorry. I'm just really excited. You give me a microphone and like half an hour to talk. I will go at it. Um, anyhow, but yeah, we can see some diseases manifest skeletally. And of course, we can look at uh, epidemiology through a medical anthropology or sociocultural anthropology lens. And uh, epidemiology and anthropology work together so well because epidemiology, of course, deals with public health. It's looking at those aggregate trends. Um, it's looking at the big picture. But the thing that epidemiology misses is that individual um, kind of story um, based on the individual level and the smaller micro community levels. And anthropology through ethnography um, which is studying a culture, talking to people, doing active participant observation, really captures those, um, those things that epidemiology often misses. And so the two disciplines can work wonderfully together in order to get a more holistic sense of how disease is experienced through people, space, time, cultures. So that's all I have for you today. Um, but of course, I've got to do our non-human listener shout out of the week. It wouldn't be anthropologically speaking without it. So today I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Stacy's cat, Dexter. Uh, Dexter is lovely. I haven't met him, but hopefully someday I will meet him. <laughs> He's really adorable. Um, I love animals. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks so much for joining. I was going to say us today, but thanks for joining me today. Um, Isabel will be on, not hiatus, she'll be, she's on a road trip, so she'll be gone for a little bit longer, but Isabel will hopefully be back at it with me soon. 
Um, we're also, we've got some special guests lined up, which I'm so excited for. Talk about people's research. I love research. I get so excited hearing about what different people are learning and doing. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, as always, connect with us on our social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, recommend a topic. If you want to come on our show, Talk Anthropology, let us know and we'll slot you in. And um, yeah, have a safe and wonderful week, everyone. And uh, don't forget to stay bony. Bye!